How did the people of a Latin American country react to the announcement that the country was banned from participation in the 2022 Summit of the Americas? Has the boycott by the Mexican president and other leaders served to isolate the American president more than they tried to isolate the Russian president? How did Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau support Biden's exclusion of Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela? Are we witnessing in the Western Hemisphere the beginning of the end of the Monroe Doctrine? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we are reviewing the consequences of Biden's refusal to host certain Latin American leaders during last week's summit meeting in Los Angeles and probe how the U.S. role in Latin America and the Caribbean may be waning at a time when its position as head of the empire is crucial. We hear from three guests. Stephen Sefton, based in Nicaragua, brings us his take on the situation from his country's perspective and on the consequences of Biden's isolation. We will get the view of journalist and Cuba specialist Arnold August on how Canada has soft-pedaled the isolation and imperial domination of the continent. This is followed by an interview with Ajamu Baraka of Black Alliance for Peace, which put out a statement encouraging Latin American and Caribbean states to boycott the Summit of the Americas altogether. On this week's program, Flop at Summit 2022, the beginning of the end of American hegemony. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 17, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Based on these factors, microbiology, Whitehead and James's philosophy, psychic research, etc., Griffin concludes that there is ample evidence for life after death, not in the physical sense, but in that of psyche or soul or spirit. He says that he has, quote, long believed in life after death, unquote, but that in offering this book with his argument for life after death as our, quote, only empirical ground for hope, unquote, since we all die, he does so reluctantly, quote, I suggest this answer with fear and trembling, knowing that most of my friends and other people whose opinions I respect will hate this answer, unquote. That they would be surprised by his conclusion is a bit perplexing since he has long believed in life after death. I surely do not hate his answer and believe that he has made a strong case for his long-held belief. That comes from the article, Is There Life After Death? by Edward Curtin, posted June 15th, originally published on the author's blog site 
Behind the Curtain. President Xi Jinping and his backers believe that the defeat of COVID is vital for his reputation and continued leadership. It has caused unnecessary food shortages and financial insecurity for those forced to stay at home for a King Knut-like policy that cannot succeed. Economic growth is taking a battering. If this crisis continues, Xi's coronation, quote, seizure of the throne, unquote, to secure an unprecedented third term at a November Congress may not transpire as smoothly as planned. In both the economy and fighting COVID, Xi has concentrated power on himself and away from the Politburo Standing Committee that allowed some, albeit limited, policy flexibility or at least debate on issues. That comes from the article, China's Zero COVID Mandate, Devastating Social and Economic Impacts, by Tom Clifford, posted June 15th. During the meeting held in the city of Sochi, the Senegalese president declared that, quote, there are two main problems, the food crisis and the sanctions. We must work together to solve these problems so that sanctions on food products are lifted, unquote. Quote, the sanctions against Russia have worsened the situation and now we have no access to grain from Russia, mainly wheat. And most importantly, we have no access to fertilizers. The situation was bad and now it has worsened, creating a threat to food security in Africa. Unquote, he warned. That comes from the article, The Food Crisis. Africa has no access to grain and fertilizers. African Union head calls for lifting of sanctions against Russia by Telesur, posted June 15th, originally published at Telesur English. At the root of this collapse is money printing. In the last 50 years, the U.S. has had only four years during which it made a profit, and that profit wouldn't even cover six months' worth of the current annual deficit. In short, the U.S. is well beyond bankruptcy. In 2020, the World Economic Forum formally announced that a Great Reset is in the works, and this reset is basically how the globalist cabal intends to fix this situation. It's not a solution for the average person. However, because the Great Reset solves the problem by transferring wealth and power into the hands of the few and erasing democracy worldwide in one fell swoop. That comes from the article, Preparing for the Reality of Financial Collapse, by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted June 15th, originally published on the Mercola website. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. When the presidents of Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, and Bolivia joined the excluded leaders of Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela in not participating in the Summit of the Americas, based this year in Los Angeles, it is clear to see that flop 
is the major story of the much-vaunted meeting of Western Hemispheric nations. We wanted to get the perspective from people living in the communities being set apart to get a sense of what has happened and what the future may be in relations between the U.S. and Latin America. Stephen Sefton, of course, is Sefton is a renowned author and political analyst based in northern Nicaragua. His articles appear on Tortilla con Sal. He's actively involved in community development work, focusing on education and healthcare. He's also a research associate of the Center for Research on Globalization. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you very much for inviting me, Michael. Now, the Nicaraguans are familiar with the role of the United States in subduing their will for the benefit of themselves going back decades. Um, But still, did the Biden exclusion policy really surprise and offend people there? No, I don't think so. I I, I think I sent you in an email um, yesterday or the day before, I can't remember, um, an opinion poll that was carried out by a very highly respected and the the most respected um, uh, opinion polling company here in Nicaragua. And, And that poll was specifically about what people in Nicaragua thought about the international situation. And, and uh, the, the, the consensus is overwhelming. The results in 70 to 80, over, over 70%, sometimes over 80% in relation to questions like, um, do you think that uh, the United States has the right to uh, impose its policies in the region? And the vast majority of people say no. And they're not, they, they reject the, 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 the role of the United States the traditional role of the United States here in the region. And they, they, they reject suggestions that the United States has any right at all to um, uh, set the policy agenda here in the region. And, and they, people are very, very strongly in favor of um, Nicaragua's sovereignty in particular, but in respect for the sovereignty and independence of nations in general. And so, now, I, I, I think, as I said to you earlier, before we started uh, uh, this conversation, recording this conversation, and in Nicaragua, the, the, the Los Angeles Ninth Summit of the Americas was, it was in, in many ways a non-event, and it was practically irrelevant from our point of view. Um, it didn't really, the, the, certainly the, the, the results of the summit um, had very little effect uh, on uh, people here in Nicaragua, and, and as, unless I'm mistaken, the main uh, positive proposal coming out of the summit was that uh, the region should better coordinate as regard on the issue of uh, migration, um, in particular migration to the United States. Um, and in Nicaragua, and that has not been anything like as big a problem as it has been for countries like Honduras, El Salvador, from which countries migration has been very, very significant um, in the hundreds of thousands over the last couple of years in particular. And one of the reasons for that uh, was very clear, again, in this opinion poll, in the, in the, in the opinion poll, and people uh, were asked, you know, what did they think about the level of security, their, their citizen security 
here in Nicaragua, and 85% of the people responding said that they felt very secure in Nicaragua. And that compares with levels that are well under 50% in countries like um, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. And even in Costa Rica, the levels of people saying that they felt secure in, the, in their country in Costa Rica was down around 60 to 65%. So I'm, the, the, Nicaragua, in, in that sense, uh, is uh, uh, that people feel very secure. The, the main problems that uh, Nicaragua has are economic problems affecting uh, every, every other country in the region. Um, the threat of inflation in particular at the moment that uh, may affect price rises and currently the government is uh, subsidizing fuel prices and the price of cooking gas um, uh, and it's able to do so for the moment because they regard that as they, they, they regard that cost, the cost of subsidizing that fuel as uh, worth paying in order to avoid much worse effects in the wider economy um, that, that would be affected by price rises if they didn't subsidize uh, diesel, petrol and, um, and cooking gas. And that's another uh, difference between Nicaragua and its neighbors in particular, but it going against the, the, the neoliberal free market uh, ideology that the United States was seeking to promote uh, in that summit. Mm -hmm. So for, 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 for those reasons, for, for, uh, for Nicaragua, what was being debated at the summit uh, was pretty much irrelevant because it was regarded as the United States trying to claw back influence and control and prestige uh, that it has lost over the last few years. It seemed like Biden was pretty much begging some country leaders to participate. I mean, Brazil's Bolsonaro, for example. I mean, was any, I don't know, call it blackmail, if you will, but would, were any substantial gains made as a result of that on, on the part of Latin American countries? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure uh, that, that, that they had any success at all in that regard, because um, even, even the CARICOM countries um, uh, had suggested that they might not attend, um, and some of them didn't. Uh, our, our great friend, uh, our beloved uh, brother, Gerald Pereira of Gu in Guyana, um, who's a, 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 an excellent, um, he's really good at explaining in, in conversations that I've had with him, um, the, the reality in the Caribbean. And he, he wrote an article that uh, we posted on our site um, uh, saying how the Latin American and Caribbean leaders missed a historic opportunity um, to strike a blow against imperialism. And he cited Mia Motley's comments um, at the um, at the summit, Mia Motley is the I think she's the Prime Minister of Barbados, and I think she's currently the pro tempore head of Caricom. Um, and she made a speech um, that uh, Gerald uh, describes as very disappointing and and kind of trying to look both ways, because uh, while she she did decry on behalf of Caricom um, and her own. Uh, national government, the uh, US decision to exclude countries 
from the summit, she also uh, kind of in a somewhat mealy-mouthed way uh, suggested that Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua themselves could do better to, to try and incorporate themselves into the uh, community of Latin American nations, which is, is and it's pretty absurd. And, and Gerald pointed out how, how, how foolish that suggestion was. But that just gives you an idea of that even somebody like Mia Motley um, felt duty bound to criticize the United States for excluding Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua. And you had, although um, Jair Bolsonaro in the end seems to have participated, it wasn't with much enthusiasm because, you know, I, you, you know yourself and I'm sure our listeners know that Bolsonaro is identified as being friendly to former President Donald Trump, and in in the in the United States, um, the uh, uh, region, and in uh, among among the United States standard opinion, and that's regarded as a complete no-no. You can't say anything nice about Donald Trump, right? So um, the, the, that that was interesting, and of course, other other people that didn't take part were. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who was the, the very first to uh, condemn uh, the, the US attempt to exclude nations. And uh, uh, Lopez Obrador said, you know, I'm, you, you can't exclude nations from a genuine uh, uh, community of Latin American and Caribbean uh, countries. You just, well, you know, just the make... very significant uh, presence in this whole uh, issue. I mean, has this bold move on his part elevated him within Latin America? Is he uh, the, the leader uh, worth talking about now? Well, I don't know. I, know, I, know. I think he's in more of a leader, and I think he's a kind of bellwether of the way opinions going. Um, and because uh, Zia Maracastro of Honduras uh, also spoke out against the um, the decision of the United States to exclude countries and, and she didn't attend. Um, Argentina's president spoke out, but he, di he did attend. Um, Guatemala's president uh, didn't attend, but that was more to do with a bilateral uh, spat, if you like, or difference of opinion between uh, Guatemala and, and the United States. And, and who else didn't attend? I know, I know, I, a, a couple of other countries uh, didn't attend. But I'm, um, the, you had even Gabriel Boric, who's, uh, you know, and uh, people here in Nicaragua look very much askance at his sincerity as uh, the president of Chile, because his foreign minister, Antonio Urejola, was the OAS representative here in Nicaragua, or rather the uh, representative of the uh, uh, Inter-American Commission for Human Rights um, during 2018. And she was here uh, uh, as the, C the IACHR representative, supposedly um, monitoring the human rights situation here between April and July in 2018. And she was, she was just a com complete partisan on behalf of the extremely violent opposition here in Nicaragua during that period. And she uh, re repeated practically verbatim every false accusation that was made by um, the Nicaraguan opposition uh, coup mongers at that time. And she has been made 
um, uh, Chile's foreign minister. And during the um, summit in Los Angeles, she uh, met with uh, representatives of Nicaragua's opposition, including out and out gangsters like Francisco Ramirez, who was associated with events involving mass murder um, here in Nicaragua. So you have Gabriel Boric there in Chile with his foreign minister. And uh, he spoke extremely, in an extremely hostile and aggressive way against Cuba, Venezuela and, um, and Nicaragua. Was saying that they should have been invited to the event. So if, if somebody like Boric feels duty bound to follow um, the lead of uh, uh, um, uh, Andres uh, Manuel Lopez Obrador, the Mexican president, and the, 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 the somewhat lesser, less uh, forthright position of the Argentinian president, um, Alberto Fernandez, then you know, that indicates the extent to which the, the, the position uh, uh, set out by uh, the Mexican and Argentinian presidents is, is, is actually the consensus in, in Latin America, even for right-wing social democrats like Gabriel Boric, who kind of dresses himself self up as some kind of progressive, but he's not. So and, and, and I, I don't know if that answers your question. Well, I, was, I, I guess I, I wanted to know, I guess I got a, a couple of minutes left, but uh, I, I, about in terms of Biden, he seems to be, I mean, while he's talking about how Russia is isolated, it, it seems like he is isolated uh, within the, uh, the the Americas, or, or, or so it would seem. I mean, uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Michael. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's very much the case, because not a single Latin American country, not Brazil, not Argentina, not Chile, um, none, of the, none of the major Latin American countries, certainly not Mexico, uh, are engaged in the, the, the illegal coercive, uh, coercive economic measures that some people call sanctions, but only the United Nations Security Council is entitled to impose sanctions. So the measures that have been taken by the United States and its NATO uh, country allies are completely illegal and, and, and no, no Latin American country um, has participated in those sanctions. To the contrary, and Brazil, uh, Brazil's foreign minister, I understand, over the last couple of days, has said how important it is um, for Brazil to continue maintaining good relations with Russia and that it intends to develop those relations. And of course, we have to remember that Brazil is one of the BRICS countries. Um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and uh, South Africa. And uh, also in the case of Mexico, it, there's a possibility that um, an, uh, the so-called BRICS Plus proposal of expanding uh, the BRICS framework to other countries. Mexico is one of the countries that might well become uh, one of the BRICS Plus group. Yeah. And so, you know, and all that indicates uh, to me that Joe Biden's efforts uh, at the summit uh, to try and persuade Latin American and Caribbean countries to uh, align in some sense 
with the United States and its NATO country allies against Russia was a complete failure. Yeah, I just got about about a minute left. I mean, do you think that basically the the United States is witnessing the end of its Monroe Doctrine, the end of its uh, imperial grip on the Americas? I mean, is the Americas now, uh, or the Latin America and so on, fighting back uh, in a successful way? Yeah, and I think it's a progressive process. And, and I think the United States still believes, and if you listen to the declarations of the head of uh, Southern Command, the US Southern Command, uh, Laura Richardson, and she, she continues to make uh, statements suggesting that there's some way or some sense in which the United States can effectively block the development of China's relations. Uh, with uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. So they, they, that, that residual idea in the United States leadership itself, that they have a right, or, uh, 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 and even perhaps the, the, the capacity to impose some kind of Monroe Doctrine in, in the region, that prevails. But the objective reality here in the region, uh, uh, in Latin America and the Caribbean, is that those days are gone. But that doesn't mean that the United States, on the basis of their false belief that they can still impose some kind of Monroe Doctrine, won't continue to intervene in the region. And they may even engage in some kind of military um, aggression, who knows, um, either directly or by proxy. For example, in the case of Venezuela, let's see what happens on Sunday, um, the 19th, when we most of us hope that Gustavo Petro will win the elections in Colombia. But if he doesn't, and, and Rodolfo Hernandez does, that uh, leaves open the possibility of some kind of uh, uh, use by the United States of Colombia to engage in yet more uh, military aggression against, um, against Venezuela. So in, in that sense, although I'm I think most people in the region fully agree that the, the Monroe Doctrine is just complete. doesn't um, bring itself up to date in policy terms about its relations with uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. It, 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 its influence will actually, the decline of its influence, sorry, will actually accelerate. Um, and, but in, in, in relation to that particular issue, and here in Nicaragua, our particular concern is that because the United States is um, uh, using uh, it or trying to align countries with its policy against Russia, conversely, it's seeking to attack countries that actively do not. And so in Nicaragua's case, recently there was a routine um, renovation of uh, the annual um, authorization of uh, visits by foreign military to Nicaragua, including militaries from the United States, from Mexico, from Venezuela, from Cuba, and from Russia. But what the United States and the Nicaraguan opposition have done with that routine authorization of uh, uh, military cooperation, um, almost always uh, to do with humanitarian issues and disaster relief and such like, um, combating organized crime and so on. Um, what the United States and uh, the Nicaraguan opposition have done is grossly exaggerate that 
routine authorization on Nicaragua's part as some kind of attempt by Nicaragua to engage in um, wholesale, uh, wholesale invitation to uh, Russia's military to uh, come and uh, participate actively in some sense in the country's uh, military policies, which is not the case so far as I'm aware. It's just a routine authorization of um, foreign militaries so that they are they can actively participate in humanitarian and other uh, exercises. And so what that means is that the United States may well try to use that as a pretext to impose yet more um, economic coercive measures against Nicaragua and perhaps even go so far as attempt to exclude it from the Central American Free Trade Agreement uh, uh, framework, which would have a very, very serious effect on Nicar Nicaragua's economy. So, and although in general, one can truthfully say that for most people in Latin America, most governments in Latin America, the days of the Monroe Doctrine are, are, are long gone. That doesn't mean the United States is not going to seek to behave as, as it has always done. Uh, against countries in particular uh, that it is, has decided to target uh, for, uh, uh, in, for their resistance, for their more outspoken resistance, in the case of Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua, to um, uh, illegitimate US uh, actions and policies in the region. Thanks a lot for uh, participating. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Michael, and I hope we have a, can have another conversation in the not-too-distant future. For sure. We've been speaking with Stephen Sefton. He's a renowned author and political analyst uh, from northern Nicaragua. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Decision to exclude Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela from the summit talks this past week arguably had ramifications more profound than President Bush intended. However, one person argues that Canada bears part of the blame for the resulting collapse of the meeting of the Americas. In recent commentary, he argues that Trudeau is soft peddling the policy of exclusion, which is alienating several major states in the region, including Mexico. We chose to bring him on the show to tell us more. Arnold August is an award-winning journalist and author of three acclaimed books. His three books on Cuba, US, Latin America have been acclaimed by experts in the field. In 2013, he was awarded the Felix Elmuza Award by the Association of Cuban Journalists and contributes to outlets in English, Spanish, and French in many parts of the world. He serves as a contributing editor for the Canada Files. Welcome back to the show, Arnold. It's a pleasure to be back with you once again, Michael. The Canadian government has the reputation of being more moderate in its relations with Cuba. They voted at the UN against the U.S. blockade. Fidel Castro himself came to the funeral of Trudeau's father, Pierre. Yet you present in your recent commentary the perspective that when push comes to shove, Justin Trudeau supports the blockade against Cuba and the exclusion of Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua from the summit of the Americas. Could I get you to recount this position in spite of the evidence on the record? Well, I think the first thing, Michael's uh, listeners uh, may have to uh, shed the preconceived notion, as you hinted at, 
that uh, uh, Justin Trudeau is somehow a friend, a close friend and supporter of Cuba. This is very far from the reality. We just take the recent events. Uh, for example, uh, I think that you probably remember the uh, the uh, July 11th uh, protest last year in Cuba that came about as a result of definite grievances, but also very strongly fueled by U.S. paid agents in Cuba to try to like, sort of uh, get a color revolution going against the Cuban government. Now, uh, Justin Trudeau, who's supposed to be a friend of Cuba, not very many people in Canada know this, but I bring it up as much as I can. Right after those July 11th protests, Trudeau issued not one, not two, but three statements that pretty much support the color revolution against the government of President Miguel Diaz-Canel. And in one of these statements, he went so far as, as to refer the, to the Cuban government as a regime, which is normally used for countries which you do not have uh, diplomatic relations with, and in fact that you're, uh, a, a, you know, in war against that government. And if we just take something more recent le leading up to the actual summit, now uh, as we know, uh, eventually uh, uh, the uh, it was formally declared by the United States that the uh, host country. United States in Los Angeles is not inviting Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Now, what did Trudeau, what was Trudeau's reaction? It's a typical, I'm sorry, you know, he is a typical liberal poster boy. In other words, a hypocrite that comes on as someone who's cool, woke and all that. He, he Michael even wears red socks. Wow, that's supposed to impress us. But behind all this appearance that has been developed uh, over the years by experts in the field of images, Justin Trudeau is really the closest ally of the United States against Cuba in it, the whole history since 1959. So that is, you know, the, the, the decision came, okay, Cuba, Venezuela, and uh, Nicaragua are not invited. Trudeau, he did not say anything with regards to that. For example, when the uh, as a as a as a lead off to the summit, uh, Justin Trudeau uh, received the new Chilean uh, president uh, Boric to Ottawa, and in the discussion, and of course they dubbed themselves as being progressives. How nice they knighted themselves as being progressive, but not e either of them in their uh, discussion in the printout of their uh, meetings. In the, in the question and answer period, none of them raised, and neither of these two raised the issue that it's not right for Cuba to be excluded. Of course, thankfully, a journalist was in the audience when uh, Boric and Trudeau were holding their press conference, and that journalist asked Trudeau, look, are you for or against the exclusion of Cuba and the upcoming summit of the Americans, which is going to take place just one or two days after the Ottawa press conference. Guess what Trudeau said? You probably guessed it. Usual Trudeau fashion. He, he did not answer the question. He actually did not answer the question. He said, well, we want to work with all actors that are going to be there in Washington, D.C. And of course, Boric uh, didn't say anything as well. 
So this is just, you know, it gives you an idea of what was going to happen in the Summit of the Americans when Cuba, of course, was not there. And during that whole period, when Trudeau was there, he had several occasions. He had a one-to-one with Joe Biden, right? Did he raise the issue of Cuba being excluded? No, of course not. But guess what he did raise? How Trudeau and Biden are so close to each other on the issue of Ukraine, opposing the so-called invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia. And in, a, in, in his own address to the summit, you know, he could have said anything, right? He said, well, you know, I have misgivings because Cuba wasn't, he didn't mention Cuba at all, but instead he went on to, to say that we, that is Canada, United States, Justin Trudeau and Biden, we have these shared commitments to democracy and all that for the entire uh, hemisphere. And right after that initial introduction uh, to his speech to the summit, this, guess what the second uh, paragraph was, Michael? Of course, Ukraine. Now, what the hell does Ukraine have to do with Latin America? He raised it just to say, look, we are on the same page with regards to Ukraine, which is another way of saying that the Canadian government is a uh, actual, you know, closest ally, a reliable close ally of the United States in its attempt to, desperate attempt, I must, I have to say, Michael, desperate attempt to maintain its world hegemony. So that's what he had to say, nothing at all with regards to Cuba. Now, I, I was wondering about just going back to the, the summit with uh, Boric, um, the, the, Trudeau had mentioned uh, about having uh, talks with key stakeholders. In, yes. and, and one of those was, uh, I guess, Cuban representatives. I know that Yoke Twell uh, was at the summit and yes. uh, he was presented in a photo with Assistant Secretary for Western Hemisphere Affairs, Brian Nichols. Yes. Who is this uh, Yoke Twell person? Is he like um, the Cuban equivalent of Juan, Juan Guaido? Yeah, well, I guess so. You can say that. I mean, he is, you know, when I just mentioned this, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, funded and uh, 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 the U.S. funded movement in July against the government, he was one of the main personalities of that, you know, so-called a cultural, so-called cultural uh, star who, uh, you know, uses rap and things like that in order to whip up uh, hatred against the Cuban government. So he was the one that was in Los Angeles. Now, of course, the US uh, uh, secretary for responsible for the hemisphere met with them and he had a, a very nice Photoshop, but we do not know, I try to go, I don't know whether Trudeau actually met with that individual or not. But in any case, it, you know, by not saying anything, on the one hand, why Cuba is not there, and on the other hand, why did the United States invite this mercenary to be in Los Angeles? No objection at all with, from, from Trudeau. So it amounts to the same, same thing. He may not have met with him, but he sort of gave his, uh, his uh, approval for this type of uh, double standards. You know, the Cuban government is not invited by the dissidents who want to overthrow the Cuban government. They are invited. So it sounds a little bit like if a foreign leader wanted to engage a civil society representative of Canada, and that civil society representative was, say, a, a trucker with a freedom convoy, somehow I don't think that uh, Trudeau would be too happy about that. Um, <laughs> I uh, Listen, there's uh, Mexico, the United States, other 
North American partner represents a huge country. It wouldn't look good for the US to broadcast a successful migration policy if the Mexican president uh, isn't there for the photo op. Uh, it's also America's biggest trading partner, I believe. What does this say to you about the differences between Canada and Mexico in terms of their relations, uh, imperialist or otherwise, with Latin America and the Caribbean? Well, I think that's an important point because we can uh, use that to develop the notion that on the one hand, you have Mexico, which of course shares a, a border uh, with, uh, with the United States and Canada that also shares a border with the United States. They're both pretty much in the same footing with regards to the United States, but Mexico, at least the president of Mexico had the guts to say, I, as a president of Mexico, will not attend because Cuba is being excluded. Now, instead, they sent their foreign minister to participate, which I guess is a good compromise. So, you know, how come Trudeau doesn't have the same guts as the Mexican president, at least to, you know, if not boycott it, unless at least speak out in the three days that were available to him in Los Angeles, but not a peep from that liberal poster boy. So, you know, uh, it's interesting and, you know, uh, one has to say there was a, a joint meeting between Mexico, Canada, and the United States, you know, the three amigos, in order to map up, uh, map out a common uh, program in the future, especially with regards to economics and, and things like that. But unfortunately, uh, no one mentioned the issue of the exclusion of Cuba. Mexico did not disappointing. But of course, Cuba, Canada did not. That is for sure. And of course, the United States forget about it. They would never deal with that issue. So, you know, it's a complicated, you know, the, the whether, you know, how to evaluate the summit. Some people say say that it was a, a success for the left in, uh, in Latin America. And others are saying that it's not so much of a success uh, for the left in Latin America. My view is that it's too early to say it. Like what actually happened there? Like, you know, whether it's a success or not, in terms of uh, defying the U.S. decision, arbitrary decision to exclude Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, it's still playing out. Like yesterday, I heard a, a very interesting uh, uh, TV interview with Cuba's foreign minister, Bruno Rodriguez, yesterday, the, the 13th of uh, June, and which he said that for the first time that while the president of Cuba, Miguel Diaz-Canel, said, I will not go. Then the United States, like sort of in behind the behind the scenes, tried to reach out to Cuba to ask him to send a lower level a delegate or representative, for example, the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And you know what the, he said the answer to, of Cuba was? Forget it. Either you invite us as you know, we send our own delegation or we don't go. And they stuck to his principle. Now, so that's still unfolding. The other things that are still un unfolding also yesterday, uh, right after the uh, Monday, right after the um, summit took place, the United States issued a statement whereby they announced they are uh, sanctioning uh, 93 Nicaraguan officials 
that they no ha longer have the right to have visas to enter into the United States as part of what the United States says that, well, they say it pretty openly, they're punishing uh, Nicaragua for having won the last election. So, you know, for, if people are saying, well, this, it was a great success for the left, I think we have to wait a while because if it was such a great success for the left, how come the you know the United States only two days or three days after the summit dared to go on the offensive once again against Nicaragua? So you know it, it's an ongoing story. I think one we will not be able to really evaluate to what extent it has been an excess or not for the left. Only we'll see how things unfold in the next. Uh, uh, in the next few days, the next few weeks. We have to close it there, but I thank you very much for your, your deeply researched views and analyses on this subject. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. My guest has been Arnold August, award-winning journalist and author and contributing editor for The Canada Files. <laughs>
to give any credibility to the United States of America um, uh, hosting this gathering. And when it became clear that this, that the U.S. state was also going to exclude uh, critical members of uh, nation states of our region, that to us was that sealed, that sealed the, the, the deal, if you will, that, that indicated that there's, there's no uh, moral or political argument uh, that should be, uh, could be and should be made uh, for, for states to attend this gathering uh, in Los Angeles. They had disqualified themselves in our estimation. It seems like the Biden administration um, was taken aback by this reaction, uh, excluding Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. But it, it was, I assume, a, a massive insult to, to the people throughout the region. Um, in, in your essay on, on the failure of Biden's summit being a victory for the region, you have an interesting line. You say the U.S. engaged in an imperialist project while seriously seeing themselves as protectors of human rights and democracy and seeing themselves in that role reflects both the height of arrogance and an administration caught in the grip of a collective national psychosis. Could you explain the dynamics in play justifying that conclusion? There seems to be a, 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 a dramatic departure from reality on the part of US policymakers. who uh, sincerely believe that in some way they are upholding the uh, principles and values of, of, of human rights uh, and democracy. And we believe that's what makes them so incredibly dangerous. If it was just cynicism uh, on their part, uh, them understanding and knowing that they represent the greatest threat to, uh, to collective humanity on the planet, uh, then that'd, that'd be something that we could deal with politically. But these folks are incredibly dangerous, Michael, because some of them actually believe that they have an inability, there's sort of a cognitive uh, disconnect and inability to see how they uh, are, are, how they relate to the world and how the world sees them. And when you have uh, individuals making policy decisions that impact uh, not only on themselves, but impact on our region, impact on the world, to have those kinds of individuals in a, in a position to make those kinds of decisions, um, they become uh, extremely dangerous. So, you know, this notion that the, the, the U.S. stands for a democracy, why it systematically undermines democratic processes in our region, uh, where, why it will uh, talk about uh, national sovereignty and self-determination uh, in Ukraine, but deny that to nations across the planet, you know, it, these folks become a, a, a danger because they are committed to, to doing whatever they believe is necessary in order to maintain the hegemony of empire. And it's absolutely uh, incredible that we have elements in the West uh, who call themselves so-called radicals or whatever, who actually give political and ideological cover to this kind of, of, of psychotic uh, decision-making processes. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess when you're in the head of, of a state like the United States or Canada, uh, you, you, you have to have a kind of like on the one hand, the, the personal face who says, well, no, racism is wrong and all the rest of it. And then the corporate face, which uh, is still tying you into this whole idea of, of expansion 
And, and I mean, is that, you know, having the personal face and the corporate face within a leader, you know, is, is that like the, the psychotic disruption that you're referring to, that this uh, maybe be a multiple personality sort of thing? Well, the, the, the psychotic disruption is this. Unlike, for example, a Henry Kissinger uh, that can uh, grapple with, with his understanding of what is real and, and, and engage in realistic, if you will, policy formation. Some of these folks, they, they, because they are ideologically driven, they seem not to be able to come to terms with, with, the, with objective reality. So that, that sort of public face versus a, a private uh, understanding of what the real deal is, that, that, that sort of uh, dichotomy no longer seems no longer to exist. That basically we have a, a whole a new cadre of, of foreign policy decision makers um, and people even in the Pentagon, but more so in, in the foreign policy community that uh, have completely abandoned the realistic perspective. Uh, and they are really just ideologues driven by uh, neocon ideological uh, 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 motivations. And that makes them very, very dangerous. Mm. Well, for the people of the region, look, uh, Maduro brought his argument to the Argentine president, Fernandez, who's also the pro tempore president of CELAC, and, and talked about meeting as soon as possible to address the issues the South is facing. Are organizations like CELAC the, the preferred approach from your perspective for, for partnership of the Americas or, or do these US imperialist interests continue to, to dog the countries and in play through these groups? I mean, you know, you, you replace the United States but maybe the Brazil takes over or something like that. No, I think, the, I think CELAC is in fact the, the formation that will be developed. Uh, it's quite clear that um, the states in our region have turned away from the uh, OES. Uh, that was reflected in the, the, the challenges that uh, we saw in the press conference with the uh, OES Secretary General. Um, CELAC represents the future of our region. It is through CELAC, for example, uh, that in 2014, um, they call for uh, our region to be committed to being becoming a zone of peace. And what that means, Michael, is that uh, these these uh, U.S. global command structures like Southcom, uh, they have to be um, uh, ejected. Uh, that the training of, of of repressive governments, the the subversion that we see that the U.S. unleashes in our region, uh, the the arms sales, uh, all of these have to be rejected. So, the the cooperation among the uh, 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 community of Latin America and Caribbean states. Uh, represented by CELAC uh, that are pursuing uh, regional independence, allowing for states to uh, to develop their own path to development. That represents the future uh, of our region. And the U.S. Is, is going to attempt to do whatever it can to try to uh, undermine uh, this new kind of solidarity um, uh, uh, energy uh, in our region. And that's why it's so vitally important that uh, civil society in, in our region, that we are, are, are strengthened organizationally and able to, to resist these attempts to try to maintain the Monroe Doctrine relationship between the US uh, and the rest of the peoples and nations of our region. In the bigger picture, we seem to be seeing the US losing its imperial grip. 
the attempts to sanction Russia over Ukraine, uh, for example, uh, outside of Canada and the Europe, uh, a huge chunk of the global south, China and India are, are not complying. So Russia, you know, Russia, Russian currency is still strong. I mean, they're, they're hardly isolated the way uh, Bush would, Biden would like it. Are these and other signals encouraging leaders like uh, the uh, Andres uh, Manuel Lopez Obrador to, to stand up and defy Biden and the U.S.? Is this the moment to move against the U.S. empire in a major way? Well, there, there's, there's more space, but let's not, we have to be very careful. There are a number of states that would, would, would love to be able to move in a, a similar kind of direction as the Mexicans or the uh, the Indians and, and even the South Africans. But as we saw with the pressure that was applied by the U.S. on these very small states in our region, uh, the U.S. can exert the significant political and economic pressure to coerce these states uh, into uh, alignment or at least into silence. We see the same thing happening uh, uh, in Africa, Michael, uh, with this legislation being uh, driven by uh, Gregory Meeks coming out of the House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, in which they are basically objectively attempting to punish African states that did not align themselves openly uh, with uh, US efforts to isolate Russia. Uh, so this legislation basically undermines uh, uh, African sovereignty. It does not even allow for the kind of, of non-alignment space that we had back in the 1950s and 1960s um, uh, among African states. It says basically it's sort of the, the neoliberal uh, doctrine, the Bush doctrine, uh, either you're with us or you're against us. Uh, so this is, you know, these are the, so the shifts taking place, no question about that. But the U.S. still has enormous uh, power to, to punish states. But there is a real resistance to this. Um, and this is the moment um, over the next few years in which we will see a decisive uh, move away from the U.S. and Europe. The, the lines of demarcation have been, have been uh, established, and they've been established more so by uh, the U.S. and Europe, uh, symbolized by the solidarity we see um, uh, among them on Ukraine versus the rest of the, of the globe. We see the impact that this war and the sanctions on Russia is having on the on the planet uh, but the US and Europe uh, is not really that concerned with that for them is the centralization of their interests and it doesn't matter to them at all what the pursuit of those interests might have on the peoples and nations of the global south and that message is crystal clear now and there's no re no returning from that and that's I think is a good thing Ajamu Baraka it's, it's been great having you on the show again thank you so much for uh, providing those insights Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Looking forward to the next time. We've been speaking with Ajamu Baraka, national organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace and, and editor uh, and contributing columnist for the Black Agenda Report, also a regular contributor to Global Research. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.